And now let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. Thank you for these verses of 1 Timothy chapter 6. We pray that as we turn to them now, that you would help me as I speak, and that you would work uh, through your word and by your spirit in the hearts of all gathered here this morning, that you might build us up as your people and keep us healthy in Christ, in whose name we ask all of these things. Amen. So please do keep your Bible open there at 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we're in verses 3 through 10 this morning. I'm sure all of us are very well aware of the big news story that is filling the headlines at the moment. That is the outbreak of the coronavirus. This virus that, of course, started in China and has now spread to many other parts of the world. And so far, according to the latest statistics at least, there have been over 80,000 cases and getting close to about 3,000 deaths as a result. And so at the moment, the scientists and the medical professionals are working hard to try and identify and as well as that contain the spread of this virus. And in these verses in 1 Timothy 6, Paul uses this kind of imagery to describe the situation that Timothy is dealing with in Ephesus. Now just notice for a second in verse 3, he talks about the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ. And really, literally, that word for sound there in verse 3 is also the word for healthy. And then contrast that with verse 4, where he talks about certain people having an unhealthy craving for controversy. And you see, don't you, in this passage, he is using this imagery of being well or being sick, being healthy or being unhealthy as a a picture to describe how the church is doing there in Ephesus, how the people in that church are doing spiritually. And Paul is saying false teaching is therefore a bit like an outbreak of a disease or a virus. And that is it can spread through a church and bring with it spiritual sickness and death. And in the church in Ephesus, this is exactly what had taken place. This outbreak of false teaching had infected the church there and it was gradually spreading. It was causing havoc in the church. And Timothy has been sent to Ephesus by Paul in order to identify and contain the spread of this false teaching. Now in chapter 6 verses 3 to 10, Paul is going to give Timothy some helpful instructions about how to go about this. How can Timothy clearly identify or diagnose 
this false teaching? How can he contain it? How can he deal with it so that the rest of the church family in Ephesus remains healthy? And as with any disease, what you need to look out for are the symptoms, the telltale signs that this disease is present. And I'd like us to see this morning that in these verses there are four symptoms of this false teaching that Timothy needs to look out for. And we'll think about those symptoms and how we can spot them today and how the sound or the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ deal with each of these things. So here's the the first symptom of the false teaching and really it's the most obvious one of all. First and foremost, the false teaching is unbiblical. Unbiblical. That's the symptom that Paul identifies there in verse 3, isn't it? If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound or the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Now already in the letter, Paul has described the kind of things that these false teachers were teaching. Right at the start of the letter, back in the fourth verse of chapter 1, Paul has spoken about how these teachers were devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations. Now I'm quite sure that the false teachers in Ephesus made use of the scriptures as well. They made use of the Bible. And so they gave the appearance of being biblical teachers, at least to some degree. But the problem was that on top of the Bible, they added a whole lot of extra stuff as well, things that the Bible never mentions. And so as well as mentioning things from the scriptures, they talked about lots of made-up stories or myths, as Paul describes them. Along with those myths, they also had these endless genealogies. Now, there are a lot of genealogies in the Bible already, but these people introduced extra genealogies, these long lists of names, dozens of people not mentioned in the Bible, and then myths to go alongside these genealogies. These are the stories of what these people did. So they had all these extra stories that they added on top of the Bible, but not only extra stories, as well as that extra rules as well. And that's what Paul touched on in chapter 4, if you remember, at the start of that chapter. He said that these false teachers forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving. And so the problem here is that they're trying to forbid things that God allows. And you see that in both of these ways, the false teachers were unbiblical. They added extra stories and extra rules on top of the Bible. And this, says Paul, is the first symptom of false teaching. It goes beyond the scriptures. It adds to the scriptures rather than simply teaching what the Bible says and nothing more. And so here's the application for us. When we come across any kind of teaching uh, 
that calls itself Christian. Ask this question of it first and foremost. Simply, is this biblical teaching? Not just do they mention the Bible in their teaching, but more than that, is what this preacher or speaker or writer saying faithful to what the Bible actually says? Or do they add extra things on top? Extra stories which they treat as authoritative or extra rules, extra demands that they place on people. And Paul is saying, if you see these things, extra stories, extra rules, that is a symptom that this is unhealthy, false teaching. Now, the classic application of this is found in Acts chapter 17. Paul, you remember there, is on his travels, and he comes to the town of Berea, And he starts preaching the gospel there in the synagogue. And some of the things that Paul was saying in that teaching in the synagogue, the things that he said about Jesus and about the cross and the resurrection, these things would have been new to some of the people listening to him there in Berea. And yet listen to how they responded to what they heard of Paul's teaching. This is Acts chapter 17. It says, they received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And you see what they did is that they tested these things they were hearing by comparing these things with what the scriptures have to say. And if it didn't match with the scriptures, well, no matter how interesting it might be, they wouldn't believe it. And if it did match with the scriptures no matter how surprising and challenging it was, they would believe it. And that, you see, is how to identify healthy teaching as opposed to unhealthy teaching, says Paul. Is it biblical or not? Or as he puts it here, does it agree with the sound, healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness? That's the first symptom, says Paul. And then the second symptom is really two symptoms that in Paul's writing here in 1 Timothy always go together, we'll notice. Pride and ignorance. Together we can call those the second symptom because they always go hand in hand in 1 Timothy, as we'll see. Pride and ignorance. And so we we come to the start of verse 4. Paul is talking about the kind of teacher who is teaching these unhealthy, unbiblical things, these extra rules and these extra stories. And he points out, firstly, their pride. He says he's puffed up with conceit. One dictionary defines conceit as being proud of yourself, your actions, and your abilities. Paul is saying there is more than a whiff of pride about these false teachers. They have a very high opinion of themselves. Again, Paul has touched on this back in the earlier part of the letter, back in chapter 1, in verse 7, we have the mention of pride there. He says these people desire to be teachers of the law. And what it means there is that they, they want all the recognition and all the admiration that the rabbis in the synagogue, the teachers of the law, had in those days. And so for these false teachers, their ministry was really a status symbol. And they loved it. They were proud. Puffed up about these things. Puffed up about 
everything they knew. All these extra stories and all these extra rules. They had a name for this, all this extra stuff. They, they called it knowledge, which is proud in itself, isn't it? Uh, you notice that Paul mentions knowledge in the penultimate verse of the letter. This is what he's referring to, all the extra stuff that they were teaching. And they believed that if you wanted to reach the next level as a Christian, uh, you need to go beyond the scriptures, you need to get all of this so-called knowledge. And only if you were in the know, like they were, could you be considered really spiritual. And so it's this sense of pride made people puffed up with conceit. And in one way or another, false teaching will always do this. It will always bring about pride. False teaching, by its very nature, makes you look not to Jesus, but to yourself. And to think, well, haven't I done well? Look at all these extra things that I know. I'm so wise. Look at all these extra rules that I've kept. I'm so good. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people. You see, false teaching makes you proud of yourself, your actions, and your abilities. And yet in contrast to that, the true gospel of God's grace, the healthy words of our Lord Jesus Christ, the teaching that accords with godliness, always humbles us. It's true, isn't it? Sound teaching will always bring us back to the cross, time and time again. And it will show us that we are desperate sinners. We're deserving only of God's judgment. And by sheer grace alone, we have been rescued by Jesus. Thanks to the fact that he went to the cross for us and died for our sin there. And without him and without all that he has done for us, we are utterly lost, utterly helpless, utterly hopeless. And therefore we look away from ourselves and our actions and our abilities and instead we look to Jesus with self-abandoning trust in him and in him alone saying to him have mercy on me a sinner as the hymn puts it nothing in my hand I bring simply to thy cross I cling naked come to thee for dress helpless look to thee for grace vile I to the fountain fly wash me saviour or I die. The true gospel and false teaching are like chalk and cheese, aren't they? False teaching fills your heart with pride. The true gospel humbles you at the cross and then lifts you up by grace. And alongside the, the pride in the false teaching, there is also ignorance. These two things, Paul says, always go hand, hand in hand. Uh, in false teaching, pride and ignorance. And it's ironic, isn't it? These false teachers were, were so proud, but at the same time, they were so ignorant. And look at how the, the pride and the ignorance sit side by side in verse 4. It says there, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. All this elaborate teaching, all these extra things, it's all just a facade, says Paul. There's nothing to it. It's all nonsense. Uh, the false teachers may be sound impressive, but actually they're incredibly ignorant. And those who listen to them, 
become afflicted with ignorance as well. In the middle of verse 5, Paul describes those who are drinking in this false teaching, and he says they're depraved in mind and deprived of the truth. And again, it's something that Paul flags up earlier on in the letter, back in chapter 1, verse 7. Again, notice how pride and ignorance sit side by side in that verse, desiring to be teachers of the law, there's the pride, without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Pride hand in hand with ignorance. Then notice the, the pride and the ignorance side by side again in chapter 6 verse 20. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. The pride and the ignorance side by side. These false teachers with so much to say but it's just hot air, Paul says. They're so proud, but they're so ignorant at the same time. And in his second letter to Timothy, Paul says a similar thing there about the false teachers. He says, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. And yet in contrast to that, sound, healthy teaching gives you the knowledge of the truth, doesn't it? What is the truth that sound biblical teaching gives you? Well, Paul has already summed that up for us in two places in the letter, you remember. He's given us these mini-summaries of the truth, the truths at the heart of the Christian faith. And in both places where he sums it up, the the spotlight shines upon Jesus Christ and what he has done. Remember chapter 3, verse 16, that summary of the truth. He, that is Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, Seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And even more succinctly, he summed it up for us in chapter 1, verse 15, where he said, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And it's Timothy's job there in Ephesus to repel the ignorance-filled teaching of the false teachers and in its place to teach the church there the truth about Jesus and all that he has done. Chapter 4, verse 6, if you put these things, these truths about Jesus before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and the good doctrine that you have followed. Chapter 4, verse 11, command and teach these things. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. So here's the difference between false teaching and healthy teaching. False teaching is filled with ignorance. Healthy teaching sets before people the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done. Then the next symptom of false teaching is controversy. And we come to the second half of verse 4 now and into verse 5. And Paul speaks about the effect that this false teaching is having upon the church family there in Ephesus. He says it creates controversy and division in the church. Paul says these false teachers have an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, 
slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction. It's exactly what had happened in Ephesus. This outbreak of false teaching had erupted and had started to infect the church. And the result was that the church was becoming divided over these things. Some people had made shipwreck of their faith by going along with this false teaching. At least two people had been excommunicated from the church already. Several people have swerved from the faith, Paul says. This false teaching was breaking the church family apart. And an ugly atmosphere had started to descend on the church as a result. There was this atmosphere of controversy. And in a sick way, some people liked it. It's always a sign of sickness when people like controversy. They're like nothing more than a controversial debate about these new ideas, all these extra stories and all these extra rules. And they'd argue about words. What does it really mean? Did God really say that? Does that mean what the church has always believed that it means? How's about a new interpretation of some of these old doctrines? And as a consequence of this atmosphere of controversy, inevitably the relationship in the church family had started to break down. Uh, Paul mentions here envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. A symptom of false teaching, you see, is that it brings controversy into the church and it, it causes relationships in the church to break down. And with all of that going on, it's no wonder, is it, that Paul spent the whole of chapter 5, the longest chapter in the letter, speaking about relationships in the church. All of that teaching about relationships is in this context, you see, of controversy in the church and the breakdown of relationships in the church in Ephesus. It was a church where their unity was under threat, all because of this outbreak of false teaching. And whereas false teaching brings controversy and division into the church, true gospel ministry brings unity to God's people. Sound teaching shows us that in Christ we've been brought together into one body, into the household of faith, as Paul calls the church in chapter 3, verse 15. And therefore, if we are all of that one household of God, all part of his family, then necessarily we're called to love one another and care for one another. That's what true teaching brings us towards, isn't it? Paul says in chapter 5, verse 1, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And when he wrote his letter to the whole church in Ephesus, the letter to the Ephesians, Paul spent a lot of time there talking to them about unity and how important that was. He said to them, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So true gospel teaching brings about the unity of the church, helps us to protect that unity and maintain that unity, the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And it's all put at risk by false teaching, which will only divide people from one another.
And then the last symptom of the false teaching here that Paul talks about is greed. Greed. What was the, the underlying motivation in these false teachers? Well, we've seen already, haven't we, that part of their motivation was pride. They wanted to, to get the status and the recognition that their ministry would give them. And also part of their motivation was this unhealthy craving for controversy. They enjoyed a good theological argument. If they'd be alive today, then they'd be on Facebook and, and Twitter, tweeting and, and Facebooking you know, all of these theological arguments that you, you often see on social media, an unhealthy craving for controversy. But, but as well as those motivations, there was also this other motivation of greed. And Paul says there at the end of verse 5, the false teachers imagine that godliness is a means of gain. So they're in it for the money. Uh, maybe they, they charged fees for, for giving teaching. And they saw their ministry as a means of making money, getting rich. And again, it sheds light on why earlier on in the letter, when Paul was teaching Timothy about those who would be elders and deacons in the church, he said there back in chapter 3, they must not be lovers of money. They must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Chapter 3, verses 3 and 8. And here in chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, Paul gives us this chilling picture of just how destructive the temptation of greed is. He says, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Now, we don't have time to go into those verses in a great, um, great level of detail, but just notice very briefly the word pictures that Paul uses there in verses 9 and 10. He says greed is like a trap or a snare. Uh, people fall into it, and it leads eventually to their ruin and their destruction, both in this life and in eternity. And not only is it like a trap, but also it's like a root a root from which grows many other forms of evil. Greed fueling so many other sins. And as well as that, greed is also like a spear or a dagger that people pierce themselves with as they follow greed and they wander away from the faith. Beware this desire to be rich, says Paul. This trap, this spear, this root of many kinds of evils. And what is the answer to it? What is the answer to greed? And Paul tells us in verse 6, but godliness with contentment is great gain. And the false teachers thought that godliness was a means of gain. And Paul says here, actually, in a way they were right. There is indeed great gain to be had through godliness. And yet it's not the type of gain that these false teachers were setting their hearts on. The gain they were looking for was financial gain. But the gain of godliness is not material things, not earthly riches. The gain of godliness is spiritual gain. And ultimately the gain of godliness is knowing Christ, 
being found in him. And when you know Christ, when you're united to him through faith, through that self-abandoning trust in him, then by virtue of being united to Jesus, bountiful spiritual benefits flow to you. Knowledge that because of Jesus, all your sins are forgiven. The assurance of God's fatherly love and care over you, watching over you now and forever. Peace of conscience before God. Joy in the Holy Spirit. Growth in grace and in godliness. The fellowship of God's people. The hope of glory. As Paul says to the whole Ephesian church, we've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And if that is the gain that godliness offers to you, then inevitably that goes hand in hand with contentment. I wonder, would you describe yourself as a content person? And when you discover that in Christ all of these spiritual riches are yours and that that is your gain in him, well, it gives you a whole new outlook on life, doesn't it? If in Christ and through faith in him all of these spiritual riches are yours now and forever, the greed for material gain just starts to shrivel up and die, doesn't it? And that greed and the many pangs of pain that come with it is replaced with contentment instead. And you start looking at things from the point of view of eternity, not just from the, the point of view of how much money is in your bank account and how soon can you retire. And instead you, you say with Paul, we brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing with this, we'll be content. And we'll be content because we have eternal, unfading imperishable spiritual riches in Christ and our treasure is in heaven and it will be ours forevermore and therefore so what if my neighbor has a bigger house than me or goes on more luxurious holidays and drives a more expensive car than me and wears trendier clothes than I do big deal seriously because they can't take any of those things out of this world. They have to let go of them sooner or later. But I'm Christ's. And he's mine. And he will be forever. Godliness with contentment. That's real gain, isn't it? Paul says to the Philippians, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for these words of the Apostle Paul and all that they teach us. And we've seen this morning some of the symptoms of false teaching. We pray that 
you would help us always to be on our guard against it. Help us to reject any teaching that is unbiblical, marked with pride and ignorance, marked with controversy and greed. And instead, help us to drink in sound, healthy teaching. Teaching that is first and foremost biblical and which humbles us before the cross, fills us with the knowledge of Christ, unites us in love for one another and fills us with contentment in Christ and all that is ours in him. Our Father, we pray all these things in his most precious name. Amen.